a holiday and retirement hotspot for Hong Kong people, and the French are going to the polls to choose a new president. The news from RTHK. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, where I return to Sharpo Village on Lama Island with archaeologist Mick Ather. Mick and his wife, fellow archaeologist Kenneth Yip, are the authors of Piecing Together Sharpo, Archaeological Investigations and Landscape Reconstruction, an analysis of the varieties of human activity in Sharpo, spanning more than 6,000 years. One of the key threats in more recent centuries was pirates. Well, yeah, we, we know from the historical records that certainly in the Qing dynasty and, and in fact earlier, piracy was a major issue. So the villages that were founded on Lama, beginning with in this particular area uh, near Shapo at Wanglong, when the Chao clan came in from Aberdeen originally, the villages were founded some considerable distance in from the coast in locations that would have been invisible for anybody passing by on boats. So the early villages in this part of Hong Kong, both in the Wanglong Valley, beginning with the village of Wanglong, which was the earliest foundation of the Chao clan, was set well back from the coast. As things became more stable, later in the Qing dynasty, we find villages like Sha Po being set up in very prominent locations, very close to the coast, on top of the back beach, because by that stage, things are more stable. The Chinese maritime customs are patrolling the area, and of course, after 1841, we also have the Royal Navy in the area, and between them, they managed to suppress the piracy quite effectively by the early 19th century, although it did continue to occur well beyond that date, but, but in, a, in a, a much lower way. So piracy would be involving other ships, or they would do these coastal raids, and, and what would they be doing? That's just, we're, we're going to nick your livestock? Certainly we, we have uh, records of vessels being taken, people being taken hostage, and materials being removed from ships on the open sea. But we also see, if you look at some of the early villages around the coast of Hong Kong, we see quite a lot of fortified architecture. Mm. For example, if we go to Muiwo, some of the early villages there have got towers, fortified towers, and I think there are, they are much more to do with piracy rather than to do with uh, fighting with other local villages. In this area, around Sharpo, what were the key eras that you were finding artefacts from? These backbeach sites tend to be multi-period, so they tend to have many layers of human activity represented going from the middle Neolithic right through to World War II. But in particular at Sharpo, there are three main periods that we found really compelling evidence. And that was in terms of the Bronze Age, where we have evidence for certain activities on the back beach and different things happening on the plateau. So we have a whole, you could say, cultural landscape, an ancient cultural landscape where people are doing different things in different areas. That's very interesting. Later we have this very good evidence on the back beach for the 6th dynasties to Tang, so 5th to 10th century. And then we have the 6th dynasties to Tang period where we have all over Hong Kong this widespread coastal industry, virtually every back beach site, which to be quite honest behind nearly every sandy bay in Hong Kong there is a back beach site or was originally a back beach site. And virtually everyone that's been excavated has turned up evidence for this 5th to 10th century industrial activity involving these 3 metre diameter clay cylindrical ovens or kilns. In many cases, the larger sites have got up to 15 of these structures aligned quite often in a couple of rows. So this is a, a really substantial industry. This is creating a, an experience of Hong Kong at that time. Travelling through these coastal waters, there must have been smoke rising from every beach 
while this industry was going on. And the fact that it's on such a scale, and we have historical references to this imperial salt monopoly, because salt was an extremely valuable commodity at that time. So we seem to have in Charpeau one quite important site where that activity is going on. So that's rich and interesting from that period. And then the most recent uh, period we also find very interesting is the Qing Dynasty, because this is a period that is not that widely studied in Hong Kong. Why not? Uh, people, there seems to be a, an attitude that it's probably too commonplace, too recent, and actually not that interesting. But from a landscape archaeologist's perspective, every period is valid. It's all part of uh, the story. And so from our point of view, we wanted to try and treat all the periods represented at Sharpo, and there are many of them, um, as equally as we could, including the period from the Qing Dynasty through the Republic into the kind of World War II era, which is where we kind of stopped. That was our notional cut-off point, you could say. Now, here we've just arrived. We've walked along Back Street towards the Tinhao Temple and then taken a left, and we're walking inland. In front of us is Sharpo Village, which now, of course, doesn't look to have that many old village houses in anymore, but there are still some here. But in front of us we have a slope, and this slope preserves the front face of the ancient Back Beach. <laughs> and this is the only place... How I've can you tell? Well, it's just the, 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 the topography. We, we know that the, the archaeology begins, the earlier archaeology begins more or less in this area and becomes richer as we move back inland onto the top of the back beach, which is rising about a metre from where we're standing. And so this almost certainly preserves one small section of the original front face of the back beach, probably recording its position by the late Tang Dynasty or thereabouts or slightly later. So this is reclaimed? Everything in front of us would originally have been shoreline. So where we're standing now, we would have had wet feet in the prehistoric period. So the coastline was further back. It was about more than a, probably more than 100 metres further back than it is today. And everything that's in front of us now turning towards the coast has all been infilled reclamation. Uh, so that process has been going on a long time. And it's not just government large-scale reclamations. The villagers in these rural locations were also filling in to it so they could extend their village areas in these coastal markets such as Yungshuan, which expanded and needed to take up more space. So we're now walking up the back beach, which is quite nice. This is the only fragment where you can actually experience this topography. Everywhere else it's been levelled because houses have been built. Um, but this is this one bit. And then we're on top now, looking at the back of the westerly of the, the two rows forming the old village. And here we can still see a few fragments of the old village houses, just two of them still surviving on the, the westerly row of Sharpa Old Village. And now we're walking into the core of the prehistoric site. So this is absolutely full of Tang Dynasty and Sixth Dynasty kilns we've just walked over. And then we're now standing on the middle of a really rich Neolithic and Bronze Age site. So this large open area in front of us has been completely opened up and excavated, mostly done in 2002. This is a project done by Kenneth's firm before I came to Hong Kong. And then we came back and did further work in this area in 2008 to 2010. But this area is extremely rich in archaeology. So under the houses to our right, or just behind them, are two Sixth Dynasty's Tang kilns. And in front of us is a, the kind of hot spot which includes a really rich Bronze Age uh, activity area, very rich late Neolithic activities, and under the house to our left is the main area where the red-painted middle Neolithic pottery was found. As an archaeologist, what's your first 
I mean, you have, you, you sort of rope round an area, mm. you then, uh, you start to sift the soil, and then is, is the idea to take everything out, or is it the idea just to record initially? Depends on the nature of the impact that will occur there. If it's a major kind of sewage improvement scheme and there will be great big holes dug to insert a sewer, then we would have to fully excavate the materials that would be affected by that development. In some cases, it might be possible to preserve the archaeology in situ. So the two kilns that we found just further, further down the path here were preserved in situ. One of them was tunnelled underneath, so they used a tunnel boring machine to go down and then they ran the sewer underneath the kiln, so the kiln is still under the footpath and the sewer is running at a lower level underneath the kiln. Another one back on Back Street, they managed to divert a water main over the top of the kiln. So, where possible, these, stru these important structures would be preserved in situ. In some situations, if we've just got archaeological layers with artefacts in, then we fully excavate it. And then we record it, we take photographs, we do a drawn record, we write lots of contextual information about the things we found, and then that is used to preserve the site by record, is the term we use, preserve the site by record. Different solutions for different situations. And this area would have also been used for salt manufacture? Yeah, there are two kilns just down the path in front of us. There are two further ones just at the back of the houses, just to our right. Th these actually f probably form part of one of the rows of kilns. And the salt would have been for local consumption and then exported? Well, the salt would mainly have been shipped out by the government for centralised uh, redistribution. One of the big issues that we find historically is the ongoing issue of salt smuggling, because the local population were fisher folk and maybe the people operating the kilns were local populations whose primary subsistence activity was some cultivation but probably a lot of fishing and they would have been preserving their catch just as they do today in many parts of Hong Kong using salt and so they should have bought their salt from the government but in fact they quite often would just produce their own salt and just not say anything about it so we find in the historical records lots of evidence from the Song Yun period for historical references to the salt officials in Kowloon Bay having to come and deal with the salt makers in, for example, in Lantau, who were revolting, who were not sending all the salt they should do. So salt was a really pivotal commodity for people. We, we knew we all need salt to live, uh, but they particularly needed it probably for preserving their catch. Along with the cooking pots and those for eating. Mm. Have you also come across uh, any kind of religious finds? That's a very kind of hard thing to nail down archaeologically. What we have found, though, is, is evidence for human burials on the back beach. So we have quite sketchy evidence for potential Bronze Age burial, but two reasonably well-preserved Sixth Dynasties burials. So from the earlier part of that period, one dating to the Jin Dynasty, and another one somewhat... So that's about when? That's around the 3rd, 4th century AD, and another one somewhat later than that from the southern dynasties, both on this back beach area, and interestingly, both with the same orientation. Now, this is quite interesting. If you talk to people like Dr Pat Hayes, who's a great local historian, he talks about the Tin Hao Temple having a main feng shui line heading towards the most prominent mountain on Lantau, which is offshore from where we're standing here. These two burials have the same orientation. Now, are we looking at an early form of feng shui? And this less well-preserved but potential Bronze Age burial seems to also be on more or less the same alignment. So we've got a burial 3,500 years old, two others around 1,500 years old, sharing a same alignment. Do you think you'll be continuing in Sharpo to, to find more items? Whether it will be me or, or Kenneth or certainly be somebody, when further development occurs, 
uh, there will be archaeological investigations because we know this is such a, an archaeological hotspot. Now you were commenting that the Qing dynasty is an area that has been less well researched in terms of archaeological finds in mm. comparison to earlier periods. You also mentioned that in Penny's Bay, for whatever reason, there was the, this blue and white crockery found. Some of the items from this area would actually get exported due to you know Chinese diasporas being in other countries. Mm. I mean, when we came to study the materials, the Qing, Qing materials from Xiaopo, we found two quite substantial dumps, like village rubbish dumps, out the back of the, uh, the village houses in Xiaopo. We excavated along the back there and we found a very substantial dump of blue and white porcelain, brown glazed village wares, cooking pots and st storage jars and so on. And when we were looking at the blue and white porcelain and trying to find good uh, comparison data sets from Hong Kong, it's actually quite difficult because, generally speaking, people don't spend that much time talking about the Qing Dynasty finds. They want to get back to the earlier stuff, the Song Yun or the prehistoric materials, which are considered to be more valuable, more interesting. So when we tried to find these comparison data sets, we found unpublished evidence from Tonglong Fort, some very useful things there, but generally speaking, what uh, Kenneth ended up doing is looking at sources from much further afield. In fact, from America, from Canada, and from other places such as Australia and New Zealand, where there was a significant Chinese diaspora in the 19th century for the gold rushes in those different countries. So Elizabeth Sin's excellent book, Pacific Crossing, is something we read while we were actually preparing our own book. And we were kind of inspired by these stories in there of materials being shipped out through Hong Kong. And what we found looking at these diaspora archaeological sites from Canada and from America is that lots of the blue and white porcelain we were finding in Chapo in Hong Kong was also turning up on these sites over there and being considered to be valuable research uh, materials and collections reflecting this Chinese diaspora. So we've actually used those materials for our comparative data sets in our discussion of the blue and white porcelain much of which would have been produced at Wan Yu in Taipo in our own blue and white porcelain industry which began in the Ming but really flourished in the Qing dynasty. So it's kind of interesting when you think about the Chinese diaspora and this small village in Yungshiwan on Lama Island that you can make these connections in terms of the material culture. They're using the same stuff. They're using the same stuff because it's all being shipped out through Hong Kong to those diaspora communities because they have particular foodways, they have particular lifeway in terms of their consumption practices and they want those right materials to do that. So they want their blue and white porcelain bowls and cups and all the other accoutrements that go with that. So we find the same stuff in these two locations, and it makes a very nice kind of connection for us. Do you find it really fascinating to... Uh, I mean, I suppose, <laughs> as an archaeologist, you've known this from the outset. But for me, I mean, I've been to Yongshiwan so many times, I've never given it a second thought that what I'm walking over might be from the Bronze Age. But, of course, it is. It's, mm. it's going to be everywhere. Mm. Um, but in terms of um, the, you know, the, these finds that you've had and these students that you also teach here in Hong Kong, do you feel that there, there, there's going to be a next generation of archaeologists coming through? I hope so because there seems to be a significant amount of interest in the department where I teach, the Department of Anthropology at Chinese University. We've just started an, an archaeology minor program uh, which includes the possibility to get some fieldwork training and the students who are pursuing that area of interest are very committed. They're doing it because they really care about it. Because, generally speaking, kids will not be encouraged to go into anthropology or archaeology in Hong Kong. They'll be encouraged to be into economics or banking or doctors or finance or things like that. So the ones that do it are 
really into it and are really committed. So it gives me hope for the future that there is this generation of local youngsters coming through who have a genuine interest and strong interest in archaeology and history and heritage and that they will carry it forward into the future. As you made the excavations around here and as you were putting the book together, what would you have said were the most exciting finds for you? Well, the, 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 some of the finds that we considered to be the most interesting were actually made by others. They, they weren't actually things that we dug up. But the, there's this so-called guan brick, which guan refers to official. And, it's, and this is stamped on the brick in relief, in reverse. It's like a mirror image of the character guan, which means official. Something to do with official government business. That was found in 2000 in excavations, I think, that were being led by the AMO, alongside a green glazed ink palette for calligraphy for writing using uh, an ink pen those two objects together together with a, a lattice stamp brick these are objects that are unique in hong kong and to find them together is quite interesting because it suggests literacy it suggests official government involvement and in terms of our idea that this salt working is part of an in imperial monopoly is part of something that's controlled by the government those objects actually give another dimension to that, add further weight to that argument. So that they were very interesting, not found by us, but still, we recognised their significance and wanted to bring that into the book because they are obviously something quite rich and interesting. I guess the most interesting things that Kenneth and I found together, I would say, were probably the structures, the kiln structures. Um, and when you actually look at the details of how they're put together, the structures, the residues that we find with them, when you actually put all that information together, it really starts to build uh, a strong argument in terms of these structures being used for salt working, rather than maybe lime manufacture, which was the an, an older interpretation of what they might be used for. Lime seems to be involved in the process, but we think it's used to coat these large woven bamboo baskets, which are then used to contain the brine, and then that gets placed over the fire. The lime fireproofs and waterproofs these large containers, which are then boiled away to produce the salt. So... That structural evidence was very interesting, I think. No gold, <laughs> which is what we usually get asked, have you found any gold? So the lime itself, I mean, how, I mean, I, you know, I hear lime pits. The lime itself, where would you find that? How would you manufacture that? The lime is almost certainly being produced from coral and shells, which are just burnt. They just burn the, those materials and that then produces uh, quicklime. And then when you add water, by slaking it, that then produces this paste very noxious hot paste which when you which then allows you to then plaster that onto these containers you can also use it for waterproofing boat hulls caulking um, and it can also be used as a powder for sweetening acidic fields for agriculture so lime has many purposes but we think in terms of the industry the main purpose it's being used for is for coating these baskets for boiling the brine and we find in some kilns many flat slabs of lime with the imprints of woven wooden or bamboo containers on the back of them which suggests this is actually the coating material from those baskets i'm talking with mick ather who with kenneth yip wrote the book piecing together Sharpo: archaeological investigations and landscape reconstruction with piecing together Sharpo, i mean i've learned quite a lot of vocab from your book i mean including is it breaming a boat Breaming, yeah, breaming is the process of removing barnacles and other detritus from the bottom of the boat by burning. And then once that had been done, they would use lime then to fill any cracks and gaps to then waterproof the hull. So all around here, you'd have had these boats sort of like uh, early dockyards, really, sort of uh, where they would be. Would they be just doing their own boats or people would actually take them somewhere? 
I think this would be just the individual fishermen would just up, upend their boat at a certain time of the year, maybe one of the slack season for fishing, and then just clean off the hull, bream the hull with the burning, and then reproof the hull using lime. And that would be on beaches down in front of the Tinhau Temple. Now, those are known from historical records as being the breaming beaches. What would the tree coverage have been in Lama? Um, because I always, when, when uh, I'm always fascinated by Hong Kong Island because it goes through sort of several periods where I mean either that people are cooking and burning loads or or just just natural flora and fauna mm. sort of seems to have various periods of, of either coverage or, or barren rock. Mm. Um, so what would the situation have been in Lama? Well, we think in certainly in prehistory the inland areas of the island would be fully forested uh, tropical broadleaf forest uh, and just the coastal areas would have been maybe partially cleared so people would be coming in on their canoes of whatever design and seeing this back beach this raised kind of low dune in front of them the plateau would be up to the left as they were coming into this bay probably forested on top of there as well in the neolithic certainly cleared partially cleared certainly by the bronze age because we know there are structures up there post holes and we know that they've got this quartz workshop, but in the Neolithic, it's probably at that time still still forested. So it's a very kind of rich forested hinterland. So in these woods, I mean, you'd have been able to find uh, wild boar. There, yeah, wild. Well, we still have those, but we do. We we see them regularly uh, <laughs> going through the bins on Lama. Um, wild boar, large deer, smaller deer such as muntjac, but a range of other species as well turning up in the kind of midden deposits. These kind of ancient rubbish deposits that we occasionally find. Some on Charpeau, just behind us, in fact, from dating from the early historical period, mostly. So what's that, early landfill? <laughs> landfill. Um, <laughs> just really just chucking the rubbish over the, over the edge of the back beach, just getting rid of it. So you just find a spread of organic material. When we have shells or some other alkaline material to balance, balance the acid in the soil, then we can occasionally get bone and other objects surviving, but it's very rare. That's an early, I mean, that's a coincidental early preservation, the fact that they might be char- they're chucking something away that has lime on it, yep. and that's going to have an alkaline impact on, on the other aspects. Absolutely. So it, it, the reason that there was a, a well-preserved early historical burial found just over the back from here was because there was a deposit of shells on top of it, a deposit of basically organic material from food residues, shells, people had eaten the shellfish, thrown the shells away, the shells balance the acid, allow the skeleton underneath to survive. So where we found preserved uh, human remains and other organic materials, it's only in areas where shells or coral or some other material like that has been deposited on top. So it's purely by chance that those things survive. You can go back to the animals now, Mick. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the main, the main species we find are wild boar uh, and deer, but there's also records of uh, long-nosed crocodile being found, remains of long-nosed crocodile. On the back beach here at Charpeau, we've got good evidence for the exploitation of turtles as well, so we've got a large green turtle carapace from early historical midden deposits. Carapace? Carapace, yeah, that's the, the bony structure underneath the turtle shell. That, that actually supports that structure. They take away the turtle shell, that's obviously gone to be made into ornaments or whatever they did with that, but we find the bony remains uh, of an animal that's probably more than a metre across at the back, so quite substantial. Any rhinos? Uh, one rhino tooth, which is uh, kind of interesting that that's all they found. And uh, the excavator, I think in 1989 when that was found, Bill Meacham, suggested that that was probably a trophy piece, that somebody got hold of this tooth and brought that to Lama, rather than there being a, a rhino rampaging round on this, on this area. 
what we also found in the early historical midden deposit was the rib of a dugong, a manatee or dugong. Now, these are animals that are historically recorded at Hoi Ha in living memory from somebody's grandfather that I, we read a report and we included that in the book. So we found just one rib of a manatee, dugong. But these are the sea cows. They live on seagrass. They need a very clean, pristine environment. And they have a significant gap in their range these days, unfortunately, which is the South China coast. Due to disturbance and due to environmental degradation, they no longer live here. But to the west and to the east, they still can be found. To be living on Lama, let's take it forward to, let's say, the, the Bronze Age, this would have been sort of densely forested, apart from the, the more areas closer to the coast. And so the sounds, I would imagine you'd have heard, heard lots of barking deer, lots of birds... Yeah, I can imagine it would have been a very kind of rich, pristine environment. This is something I talk about, you know, when people first arrived in this area by boat, when the sea level stabilised around six and a half, seven thousand years ago, they were encountering a, a, a superabundant environment, richly forested, lots of forest animals, an ocean that was in pristine condition, an ecosystem that was in pristine condition, just a small population of people, huge populations of fish and marine uh, animals, and terrestrial mammals so not a bad place to be um, but also a few large probably scary wild animals as well that you might want to avoid like tigers and things like that with the kiln um, you were describing earlier about how you know basically you would have this it would it be sort of lime coated uh, what, a basin that was hung over yeah. a fire the kilns basically are three meter diameter or thereabouts with quite thick walls up to say 30 to 50 centimeters thick made of clay fired clay with a, a solid base made of clay with uh, stone slabs. And then with, on top of that cylindrical structure, around the top was a series of radial bars, which extended out over a plastered surface outside the kiln. And those radial bars, we think, were to support these large, maybe up to three metres diameter, woven containers, very much like the, the kind of thing you see shrimp paste drying in if you go to Tayo and places like that, but bigger, on a bigger scale than that. And then these would be coated with lime to make them fireproof and waterproof, and then the concentrated brine would be boiled on top of those stoves. These things have no superstructure, so they're definitely not used for any other kind of purpose um, that would require that sort of pottery making or that kind of uh, activity. These, these are much more like ovens. Maybe kilns is actually a misnomer, but we've kind of inherited this term. But ovens is maybe a better word for them. Uh, and they are a quite a consistent design with this open top, radial bars, and a very long surface stoke channel, which only makes sense if you have to get fuel into the centre of the fire when something large on, on top is blocking that space. So this, again, seems to fit with this idea of these large woven baskets, which are historically recorded in some... Uh, Chinese historical documents as well. Yes, I was going to say there's an awful, you know, whilst you are able to find the metals, the quartz, the um, the, the pottery, there's also, as you say, these organic materials, mm. what they'd have made, the, the straw hats, the, the, the straw baskets, all of those things would uh, have disappeared over time. Mm. But um, if, um, as an archaeologist, if you were, you know, for future archaeologists, what would you want me to bury in 2017? Um, or discard with my lime shells uh, in order to for, for future archaeologists to find? <laughs> That's a really difficult question. iPhone? Um, iPhone? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. In, there's a very popular programme in the UK called 
time team, which is no longer running, but it was an archaeology program that introduced many people to archaeology. And there was a huge, uh, huge expansion of student numbers getting into archaeology as a result of that program. And in one of those programs, Tony Robinson, the presenter, buried himself, or had himself laid out for burial. <laughs> the program had been about a prehistoric burial site, but he said, what about if we were doing a modern burial? And he was laid out with his iPhone, with his glasses, and with his wallet, and his, and his credit cards, and that, that was the things he would take with him to the next life. One of the issues, I think, l looking forward and trying to think about what will future archaeologists make of the 21st century, it's very hard to say, because we make so much rubbish. Uh, it's kind of, there's almost too much. And so I, I kind of wonder what the archaeologists of the 25th century will make of what we leave behind in our present era. My thanks to Mick Ather, the co-author of Piecing Together Charpeau, Archaeological Investigations and Landscape Reconstruction. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. the Hong Kong SAR's 20th anniversary, so let's celebrate together. A wide range of events are being held, from sports action to cultural performances and world-class exhibitions to district get-togethers. There's something for everyone to share for the Hong Kong SAR's 20th anniversary. Want to know more? Visit hksar20.gov.hk for details. The MPF Default Investment Strategy, or DIS, has been launched. Key features are automatic reduction of investment risk according to MPF scheme members' age, fee caps, and globally diversified investment. If you've never given investment instructions, your trustee will send a notice to let you choose whether to invest your MPF benefits according to the DIS. Contact your MPF trustee for inquiries. Radio 3, it's time for Book Club. In the early 1900s, a Moscow writer under the pseudonym Teffy enjoyed huge success. But events intervened and she had to take flight, as recorded in her translated account, Memories from Moscow to the Black Sea. It all started like this. Moscow. Autumn. Cold. My Petersburg life has been liquidated. The Russian word has been closed down. There is, it seems, no possibility of anything. Or rather, there is one possibility. It appears, day after day, in the shape of a squint-eyed Odessa impresario by the name of Guskin, who is trying to persuade me to go with him to Kiev and Odessa and give public readings there. Had any bread today, is how he begins. Well, tomorrow you won't. Everyone who can is going to the Ukraine. Only no one can. But you, you'll be going there by train. I've already telegraphed the Hotel London to reserve you the best suite. The sun will be shining. You'll read people one or two of your stories. You'll take the money. And then you'll be sitting there in a cafe. What's to lose? Everyone knows me. Just ask your friends. 
My pseudonym is Guskin. For the love of God, let's go. The best suite in the International. But you said the Hotel London. All right, then the London. Do you have something against the International? I ask around for advice. There truly are a lot of people desperate to get to the Ukraine. This pseudonymous Guskin of mine, I demure, there's something.